Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. Plan on joining us for the holidays this year and spend Passover, Pentecost, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, or Sukkot with your brothers and sisters in Hudson, Wisconsin. Some people have the custom of decorating their sukkah with a plaque uh, or a poster or something with the words, Zekar Anane Hakivod, that is, a remembrance of the clouds of glory. It's a sukkah decoration. And some will even go so far as to put up an actual picture of beautiful clouds in their sukkah as a remembrance of the clouds of glory. When I heard about this custom, I even asked First Roots of Zion to print a cloud of glory poster that people could use to put up in the sukkah. So, today I'm going to explain some of the ideas behind this. And I'm going to start with the basic halakha, the halakha of the situation. The Mishnah has an interesting rule about skach that covers over the top of a sukkah. So this is the roof of your sukkah, basically. I mean, first of all, it needs to be, it needs to be made of something that grows directly out of the ground. You can't use just anything for skach. It has to be something that grows directly out of the ground, but it must also be something that is not susceptible to ritual purity. What does this mean? I'll give you an example. Um, you might use, for schach, you might use reeds. Why? Well, because reeds grow directly out of the ground, and so you could, that would make a very nice roof for your sukkah. You could put up reeds. Or you might think, well, if I can use reeds, why not a reed mat? Well, a reed mat is not kosher for schach. That doesn't work for the roof of your sukkah. Why? Because the mat takes on a different status in Jewish law. The mat is not just reeds, it's a mat. And a mat is susceptible to ritual impurity, whereas reeds are not susceptible to ritual impurity. That's how I understand it. It's a matter of Jewish law. The Talmud then searches for a justification for this rule. From where in the Bible do we derive this rule? And there's several attempts. Uh, and none of them are at all satisfactory, but one of them is really significant and one that I have often referenced. The, the, here's the rule. Anything that is susceptible to ritual impurity does not qualify as schach. It doesn't qualify as the roof of your sukkah. From where do we learn this? Okay. Reish Lakish says, we learn it from the first verse in Genesis 2.6, where it says, now a mist ascended from the earth. Just as a mist is a thing that is not susceptible to ritual impurity, and it grows from the earth, likewise, schach must be something that is not susceptible to ritual impurity and that grows from the earth. All right, this explanation from Reish Lachish on the subject creates a really interesting dichotomy because it manages to bring together two things that don't seem like they belong together, namely heaven and earth. Clouds ordinarily belong to heaven. They are things of the sky, things that belong in the sky. They float along, untouched by the impurity of mortal concern, untouched by the things of the earth. Things of the earth, on the other hand, things that come up out of the earth, that grow out of the earth, on the other hand, this crude matter. These are the types of things that are easily susceptible to pollution of all types. So according to Reish Lachish, the sukkah should be something that occupies both heaven and earth. You take something that grew from the earth 
and you lift it above you on the roof of your sukkah, placing it in the heavens above you, elevating the earthly to the heavenly, or conversely, bringing the heavenly down to earth in the form of creating an earthly version of the heavenly cloud. And that is the sukkah. And I think that we'll find this heavenly versus the earthly thing as a theme that runs throughout Sukkot and, and runs throughout the kingdom teachings about the heavenly descending to, to become earthly and the earthly ascending to become heavenly. It's sort of the name of the game. The Talmud also picks up on this dichotomy between heaven and earth, the heavenly and the earthly, and the Talmud objects to the statement of Reish Lachish as an explanation for why skrach needs to be ritually pure, namely on the basis that just as clouds are not susceptible to impurity, neither should skrach be susceptible to impurity. So the Talmud says, this explanation works for the one who said that the Sukkot were clouds of glory, but not according to the one who said they were actual literal booths. What? Okay, so here's the difference of opinion on Leviticus 23.43. One opinion says they were literal earthly booths. The other says they were made of heavenly clouds. Let's see if we can understand both opinions. It was taught in Abraita. Uh, Leviticus 23.43, I made the people of Israel dwell in Sukkot when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. What exactly are the Sukkot, the Hashem, made the people of Israel dwell in when he brought them out of Egypt? Rabbi Eliezer explained, the Sukkot were the clouds of glory that surrounded Israel in the wilderness. Rabbi Akiva says, the Sukkot they dwell in were actual Sukkot that the children of Israel made in the wilderness. Now, personally, I would go with Rabbi Akiva. I would naturally assume that we're talking about tents, that these are the Sukkot that Hashem made the children of Israel dwell in in the wilderness. But a sukkah is not a tent. All through the Torah, it refers to the tents that the people lived in. It never refers to them living in booths. It's also strange that it says that God made the people of Israel dwell in Sukkot. It doesn't say that the people made Sukkot. It doesn't say that they made booths. It says that God made them dwell in Sukkot. He is the cause. And by implication, he is the source of the Sukkot. In any case, we see some of this distinction again here between the heavenly and the earthly Sukkah. A literal Sukkah, an earthly Sukkah, you know, uh, a, a literal booth versus a metaphorical Sukkah, a heavenly Sukkah. And this goes back to the question, our initial question, uh, of what does schach really mean? What, what does a sukkah really mean? The word sukkah comes from this unusual Hebrew word schach, which means to cover over or to overshadow. And the concept really belongs to the world of the heat of the sun, such as you experience in the land of Israel, especially in a dry wilderness place, it's a matter of creating a little bit of shade from the sun. That's what you're looking for with schach. Something to get you out of the direct sunlight. For example, in the Psalms, David seeks a rock that is higher than me. He wants to find just a little bit of shade. That's what schach is meant to do. Not to keep the rain out, but to keep the sun from beating down on you directly. For example... We hear in the story of Jonah, in Jonah chapter 
4 verse 5, it says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a sukkah for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he would see what he should see what would become of the city. It's a temporary shelter. Often it was used during the harvest season to get out of the heat in the hottest part of the day. But you could also sleep in the sukkah during the night to protect the harvest from thieves. And so the prophets speak of a watchman's sukkah. Job makes reference to a watchman's sukkah when he warns that the wealth of the wicked will not endure. He says in Job 27.18 uh, that the wicked man builds his house like a moth's, like a sukkah that a watchman makes. And along that same sense of a harvest booth, of getting a little shade from the heat of the sun, a place to sleep at night during the week of harvest, the prophet Isaiah compares Jerusalem while under siege in Isaiah 1.8 uh, to a sukkah. He says, and the daughter of Zion is left like a sukkah in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. This is not the only place that we find Jerusalem compared to a sukkah either. In Lamentations 2.6, we read as follows. He has laid waste his sukkah like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. So here we're talking about the temple in Jerusalem is being referred to as God's sukkah, his sukkah, his meeting place. He's laid waste his sukkah like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. In his fierce indignation, he has spurned king and priest. So the temple in Jerusalem is called God's sukkah. And this idea plays well into the distinction that we're drawing between, is it an earthly literal sukkah or is it a heavenly cloudly sukkah? Are we talking about the temple below or the temple above? And in the kingdom, we have these prophecies regarding the sukkah of Hashem. It says in Amos 9.11 in the kingdom, it says that, In that day I will raise up the sukkah of David. That is fallen down, and, and I will repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in days of old. And here, this is the sukkah represents the Davidic dynasty, the Davidic household. And in Isaiah, here's another kingdom prophecy in Isaiah, uh, where it says, Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion, over her assemblies, a cloud by day, and smoke, and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory. There will be a canopy. There will be a sukkah for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. So it turns out that Rabbi Eliezer's interpretation is really not so far out after all. We have here in the prophet Isaiah a direct reference to the cloud of glory over Messianic Jerusalem, providing a shade by day uh, from, from the heat, and Isaiah calls it a sukkah. What does sukkah literally mean? It's actually from the word sachak, which, and sachak means to overshadow or shade. Uh, so in that case, a cloud can sachak you. It can, it can give you shade. It can overshadow you. So you could legitimately call a cloud that keeps the sun off of you a sukkah because it's functioning as a sukkah. And this is actually how the mitzvah of the festival of Sukkot is translated in some targums. Uh, so Leviticus 23, if we're reading directly from the Torah, this is the English standard version of Leviticus 23. It says, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So when the Torah says, ki basukot, 
Hoshavti et Bnei Yisrael. The Targum translates Basukot in Sukkahs as Bamitala Anani. In other words, I made the people of Israel dwell under covering clouds when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So this explains Rabbi Eliezer's interpretation, which the Mishnah cites to explain why schach cannot be made from anything that might become ritually impure, because the schach is supposed to be like a cloud, and a cloud cannot become ritually impure. This explains why we have pictures of clouds in the sukkah and the words zeker le'anani hakivod, a remembrance of the clouds of glory. And perhaps there is an association, then, between the presence of Hashem, as symbolized by the schach, and ritual purity. Because the schach is supposed to be made of something that cannot become ritually unclean. The cloud of glory in the wilderness, as we know, the cloud of glory was a physical token of God's shkinah, His dwelling presence. It was the cloud of glory that led them out of Egypt. Hashem looked down from the cloud. There was the cloud of glory on the mountain. The cloud settled on the tabernacle. Moses couldn't enter the tabernacle because Hashem came down upon the tabernacle. His dwelling presence was in the cloud. It led them through the wilderness. This is the same cloud that later appeared over the temple on the day that Solomon dedicated the temple and overshadowed the courtyard. So it says that the priests could not stand to minister uh, as they entered the temple courts. So the cloud represents the divine presence. Bamidbar chapter 9, Numbers chapter 9 says, On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle, like the appearance of fire until morning. So it always was. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in the camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle. According to the command of the Lord, they remained in the camp. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. Sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days, or a month, or a longer time, that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there. The people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. And when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. At the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord. At the command of the Lord, by Moses. Numbers chapter 9, verses 15 through 23. The cloud of glory uh, and the fanfare of trumpet blasts that led the hosts of Israel in the wilderness, allude to the coming of Messiah. Our Master appeared transfigured before His disciples, accompanied by the cloud of glory. And in this story, we have the same tension between the literal booth and the sukkah of the cloud in Matthew 17, where it says, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Yeshua, Master, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three Sukkot here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. 
And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So the cloud is related directly to the declaration of the Son, as we read in Luke one thirty-five where the angel Gabriel says to Miriam, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This reminds me of another discussion in the Talmud, where the Talmud refers to Messiah as Bar Nafli. We find this in Tractate Sanhedrin 96b and 97a, Rabbi Nachman said to Rabbi Yitzhak, Have you heard when Barnafli will come? No, Barnafli literally means son of the fallen. Yitzhak asked, Who is Barnafli? Nachman answered, Messiah. Yitzhak asked, Why do you call Messiah by the name Barnafli? He explained, Well, it's written in Amos 9.11. In that day, I will raise up the fallen Sukkah of David. Now, like the sukkah, which could refer either to a booth or a cloud, the title Barnafli has a double meaning. In Hebrew and Aramaic, Barnafli means something like son of the fallen, referring to the fallen sukkah of David, the fallen house of David, the fallen dynasty of David that Messiah is going to restore. As it says in Amos 9.11, in that day I will raise up the fallen sukkah of David. On the other hand, the word nafli sounds like the Greek word for cloud, nepheli. In this way, it suggests the title Son of the Clouds, which is an allusion to Daniel's vision of the Messiah coming with the clouds of heaven. It says in Daniel 7.13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So you see, we have this wordplay here. Uh, that's what Bar Nafli is about. That's this, what this whole conversation in the Talmud between Rabbi Nachman and Rabbi Yitzhak. Have you heard when Bar Nafli will come? Who's Bar Nafli? Oh, it's the son of the fallen sukkah of David. In other words, it's a title for Messiah. Or you could read it, son of the clouds. The one who's going to be coming with the clouds of heaven. One like a son of man, like it says in Daniel 7. So the son of David restores the earthly sukkah of David's dynasty and household when he comes with the clouds from the heavens. It reminds me of another passage from the Talmud, which contrasts Messiah who will come with the clouds against Messiah who will come lowly and riding on a donkey. And here again, we have this dichotomy which is being reconciled in Yeshua. We have the Messiah who will come with the clouds, how is the Messiah going to come? With the clouds of heaven. Or, how is the Messiah going to come? Lowly and riding on a donkey. And Messiah is both. He reconciles both these visions of the future, both these visions of the coming of Messiah. Yeshua reconciles both of these, as it says in John 3.13, No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Likewise, the Targum on 1 Chronicles 3, verse 24, picks out the Israelite name Anani as a title for Messiah. The name Anani is based on the Hebrew word for Anan, uh, or the Hebrew word Anan, which means cloud. Uh, and so Anani means of the clouds. The Targum explains that Anani 
is a title for King Messiah who will reveal himself in the future. And this is, here's the verse that we, we're going to targum, that we're going to translate into Aramaic. It's First Chronicles 3.24, where it's telling us the sons of David, says uh, the sons of Eliani, Eliani, Hodaviah, Elishiv, Peliah, Akub, Yochanan, Deliah, and Anani, seven sons. All right. But in the Targum, Targum Yonatan, it says uh, the sons of Elioni were Hodaviah, Eliashiv, Peliah, Achub, Yochanan, Deliah, and Anani. He is the Messiah king who will ultimately be revealed. That's what it says right in the Targum. It says Anani is the Messiah king who will ultimately be revealed. Son of David, that's called of the clouds. Yeshua told his disciples they would see him as the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, accompanied by a great trumpet blast for the purpose of assembling his people Israel. That's what the blast of the trumpet is for. And when he ascended, we know, a cloud received him and the angels told his disciples the same way you watch him go into heaven, you'll see him return. And Paul comes and tells us to anticipate the day when Yeshua will descend from heaven with a teruah, with a trumpet blast, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And then we who are alive and remain at that time will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That is to say, we'll join this great cloud of witnesses at the last trumpet The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, Paul says in another passage, and we will be changed. So there's this connection between the trumpet blast and the clouds. You know, the priests, they sounded trumpets to herald each of the appointed times, the festivals. Likewise, the angels are going to sound a series of trumpets to herald the final judgment. We read about the seven trumpets in in Revelation. And the Apostle John in Revelation, uh, he said, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. Moreover, John heard the master speak to him with a voice like the sound of a trumpet. Remember, so this takes us back to Numbers where the cloud of glory is lifting up and leading the camp and the people are sounding the the trumpets as the cloud heads out. So we're looking forward to the day when we shed this temporary sukkah to be clothed in the immortal permanent body of the resurrection from the dead, which is symbolized by the cloud. We're going to be caught up with the Lord in the air, uh, caught up together with them in the clouds. It's and, and in that day, there's this reconciliation between that which comes from the earth, that's us, our physicality, our human body, and that which cannot be tainted by ritual impurity, the spiritual, the spirit that's been invested in us, the heavenly that's come. And in that day, there's this reconciliation where the physical becomes spiritual, so to speak, it becomes, a, you, uh, it becomes a resurrected heavenly body, no longer subject to ritual impurity, no longer s- subject to contaminations because this perishable must put on the imperishable, Paul says. And after the resurrection from the, from the dead, then there's no need for ritual purification. For The resurrected don't need to worry about ritual purification because there is no impurity. They, they're no longer susceptible to ritual impurity, like the skak above us. In the sukkah. And these themes of resurrection are also reflected in the Sukkot prayers. Uh, that one prays inside the sukkah, when, you know, when we're welcoming the holy guests, the Ushbizin, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, and David to come and join us in the sukkah, we say, Enter, exalted guest, be seated in the shade of the Holy One, 
Blessed be he. We ask them to sit in the shade of the Holy One. And what we really, we're identifying the skak above us in the sukkah as the shade of the Holy One. Blessed be he. And we're, in, we're inviting the resurrected to join us. And we ask God to spread out his sukkah of peace over us like an eagle spreading its wings over its brood. As it says in Deuteronomy 32, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings. And when we are in the sukkah, we say, we pray, we pray to God, grant me the privilege to dwell and take refuge under the sheltering protection of your wings at the time of my departure from the world. Grant me refuge from the fiery stream and the fiery rain when you rain fiery coals upon the wicked. And in this way, the sukkah is depicted to symbolize God's sheltering presence, which shelters, shelters us both in this life and spreads out over us and shelters us in the next life, rescuing us from Gehenna. And maybe this is, maybe this is why the skak needs to be made of something that cannot become ritually impure. I've already seen a clear association between the presence of Hashem as symbolized by the skak and ritual purity. The cloud of glory was a physical token of God's dwelling presence, and the skak represents the cloud of glory. And the cloud of glory, which is symbolized by the sukkah, uh, really the skak over the sukkah, is the same cloud, as we know, that led them out of Egypt and settled on Mount Sinai. And when, when, when Moses, the first redeemer, the first son of the clouds, ascended Mount Sinai, he entered into the cloud, it says. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And then we have the story of the golden calf. And then Moses comes down. He breaks the tablets. And then he says to Israel, maybe I can atone for you. He prays. He atones for Israel by negotiating with Hashem. Uh, he ascends. And, and he comes back with the second set of tablets. He ascends before the Almighty. And then he says to Hashem, please show me your glory. And Hashem says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, Hashem, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will have mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you, sakakti. I will cover you, I will skak you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Sakakti. Maybe this is one of the reasons that we read this Torah portion from Exodus uh, on the Sabbath that comes during the festival of Sukkot. When we're in the sukkah, we are, as it were, in the cleft of the rock, beneath the shadow of the hand of the Almighty, in his presence, in the cloud, like Moses, or like the son of the clouds. It goes on and it says, Then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. 
Later, as I've already mentioned, this cloud settled on the tabernacle, and this cloud led them through the wilderness, and this is the same cloud that appeared over the temple on the day Solomon dedicated the temple. It overshadowed the temple courtyards, which is one of the Haftarah readings for Sukkot, and it entered the temple. And it, in all these instances, the cloud represents the divine presence of God. And, and maybe this explains the halakhic rule that we started off this talk with, why the schach should be made of something that cannot contract ritual impurity because it symbolizes the presence of the Almighty, the sheltering presence of Hashem, and the unification of the lower with the upper, the earthly with the heavenly. Likewise, our brief sojourn in the sukkah symbolizes the banquet of the kingdom and the world to come, when we will recline at the table in the sukkah of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, along with the whole great cloud of witnesses, a future which we acknowledge in the Ushbizin ritual each night of Sukkot. And then we will recline in their midst when heaven has come down to earth and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and he will spread his sukkah of peace over us and over Jerusalem. Chag Sameach, happy Sukkot, Hoshana, Hoshana in the highest. Find rest for your soul